0: This is Hamlet to Hamilton exploring verse drama. I'm your host, Emily CA Snyder. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 2, Redefining Verse Drama. To be, to be, or not to be, to be or not to be, that is the question. Hello, friends! Welcome back to Hamlet to Hamilton. And in season three, the patrons over on Patreon have spoken, and we are studying soliloquy both in writing and in performance. Last episode, we defined what a soliloquy is. And this episode, I want to take a moment to, as the title says, redefine verse. Or more specifically, I want to pull apart our ideas of formatting as opposed to the style of words we are using within that formatting. Now, before we get started, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. As I said, this season, as all seasons, but this season was chosen by our patrons over on Patreon to be about soliloquy. And you can join us over there on patreon.com slash hamlettohamilton. Sign up at any level and you get access not only to seasonal polls, but also to the monthly unhinged rants, which are a lot of fun. If you're interested and want to join in the discussion, you can always find us on Twitter at hamlettohamilton with the number two in between, or you can use the hashtag hamlettohamilton, all spelled out in English. We love hearing from you. So much of this season has really been developed and better understood because of the conversations that are happening over on Twitter and asking and challenging and exploring and all sorts of good stuff. So please do join us over there. If you cannot... Support us over on Patreon, of course, you can always give us, I mean, you know what to do, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, Uh, we really appreciate it. Now, this season, as in season one, is meant to be semi-scaffolded, which is to say it helps if you have heard episode one, Um, it helps indeed if you have heard season one, but the exciting thing about today's episode is, I think, if you have a vague sense of what Shakespeare or Moliere um, or Glenn Maxwell or Peter Oswald or Lucas Anath or um or any of these playwrights' scripts look like, if you've read Sarah Rule, then you have a sense of what verse is. You have a sense of what paragraph is. You have a sense of what prosaic language is. You have a sense of what poetic language is. So I think today is an episode that if you're new here, welcome! (laughs) There's nothing you particularly need to have brushed up your uh, education on. If, however, at any point you get a little bit lost, you can always head over to hamlettohamilton.com, check out the show notes, check out previous episodes, go to additional resources and see if there are any articles there that might help you brush up on what you're looking for. You do not have to take notes during today's episode. If you're driving in your car, please don't. All the notes are over on hamlettohamilton.com. And again, if there's something that you would like us to cover, join us over on Patreon or give us a shout out on Twitter. Okay, all of the housekeeping is out of the way for today's episode. So let's dive into essentially what is the difference between paragraph and prose, the difference between verse and poetry. What are the types of formatting we use in a theatrical script? What are the types of styles that we use in a verse drama script? So, in our last episode, we defined a soliloquy as a largely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by an isolated character in some cases, characters, but we'll get to that later in the season. And this character does not intend to be overheard by any other in-world character. Occasionally, they don't want to be overheard by the chorus or the narrator either, but they definitely do not want to be overheard by any other character in the play. If you're not sure what that means, go back, listen to the last episode, or check out hamlet A soliloquy is always about in-world events because it's delivered by a character who is in the world of the play. And this is the important part for today. A soliloquy may use any sort of formatting. And a soliloquy may use any style of language. And that style of language may use whatever ornaments it pleases. So what do we mean by formatting, what do we mean by style, and what do we mean by ornamentation? Let's do some brief definitions first, and then we're going to delve in actually backwards, um, because I want to spend the majority of the time in this episode on formatting and on reading to you different snippets of the different formatting so that you can hear the difference. Uh, The reason why we are putting this episode as the second episode before we delve into soliloquy and examples of soliloquy is because formatting is going to be one of your major tools, another tool in your tool boudoir, to consider how does your character speak what sort of sounds are you going for? Therefore, what sort of formatting might actually help release your character, release this soliloquy, get across your thought or your vibe or the narrative plot moment? So I want to make sure this tool of formatting, combined with style, combined with ornamentation, is in your tool boudoir. So we're going to briefly define each term, then we're going to go backwards, then we're going to delve further into formatting, which will help us redefine verse drama, and most of particularly, redefine different types of verse. So this should be very exciting. And it is probably worth noting that quite a bit of today's episode is um, is my IP, is my intellectual um theorizing. And so here we go. This is my copyright. Let's dive into what is formatting. So I've been inspired by Glenn Maxwell's idea that he wrote in his fantastic book on poetry about the black on the white, which is to say any sort of black notation on the white page. Uh, so thank you to Glenn for that uh, groundbreaking terminology. And now let's build on that. Formatting very simply means what is the layout on the page of the black on the white? What is the layout on the page of the black on the white? And this formatting will in fact have a performative element to it. Certainly there's formatting in formatting in novel, but when we're formatting scripts, screenplays, etc., the formatting is where is the placement of the black, whatever the black notation is, on the white, and what performative information does that formatting, does that placement give to the people who are interpreting? The style then are the choices that you make about the type of notation you are putting on the page. So uh, is your style prosaic? Is your style poetic? Is your style rhetorical? Is your style informational? We'll be getting more into that in a second. But essentially, what style of markings, of notations, of black are you putting on the white? that's the style. Then we have ornamentation, which means what are the extra things that you are putting on the notation. So for example, if you're using musical notation, you might be putting forte, piano, crescendo, accelerando, different markings um, to tell people, again, performative information. With words, we might use a mode of formatting, we might use capitalization, we might also decide, uh, as, as mentioned, that if we're going to do poetic style, then we might use alliteration, we might use metaphors, so on and so forth. Okay, so formatting is the placement of the black on the white and what performative information the formatting gives. The style is the type of notation you are using in that formatting. Be it musical notation, be it in our case verbal or meant to be verbalized word notation. Um, And then what is the style of that notation? Um, Then we have ornamentation. What are the extra bits that you're putting on? And again, all of this in a script is meant to help the performer's Perform is meant to be a way for the playwright, the composer, etc., to communicate to those who are interpreting. And then the interpreters will, in our case, vocalize that formatting, that style, that ornamentation. And they'll put it through their own interpretive lens. In fact, In interpretation, you know if you've ever done any sort of performance, you add your own notation on top of what the playwright gave you. You might change breath marks. You might decide to ignore this capitalization but to lean on a different word. And you might put notes in there to remind you of what you are doing. Again, in a script, the whole point is for whatever's on that page to give help in the performance. It is for the purpose of performance, which will eventually be seen by an audience. Not everything that's on the page, if you're the playwright, is going to be recognized by the audience. So some of what you put on is, is just sort of like love letters, as Cha Ramos puts it. Um, Cha is a fantastic intimacy director, violence coordinator here in New York City. Look her up. Well, worth knowing, but she talks about, she's also a dramaturg, and she talks about how quite a bit of what's written in a script is a love letter to the performers, to future interpreters of this work. Right. So let's talk ornamentation to begin with. Now, I'm not going to list every sort of ornamentation because (laughs) that way lies madness. if we're talking poetic ornamentation, I would just be sitting here reading to you the enormous poet's glossary. And frankly, you can do that on your own. But it includes things like, as we mentioned, a lot of things that are in the tool boudoir from season one. Again, we're doing verse drama. Let's not have a toolbox. Let's have a tool boudoir. So if you're writing in poetic language, in a poetic style, As mentioned, you might be using not only capitalization, things like that, but you're going to possibly be using assonance, consonance, rhyme. You might be using uh, repetition of words, identical rhyme. Uh, You might be using interior rhyme. I'm sorry, I'm focused on rhyme at the moment. Uh, There are a lot of ornaments that you can put on. And in fact, The world of poetry has given us a brilliant array of names for different poetic devices or different ornaments. But even in prosaic language or rhetorical language, you have different ornaments that you can use. As mentioned, you can use emotive formatting all the time, even in the most just informational style we will use bullet points. We will use bolding certain, like, informational headings. We will use underline, things like that. The style of the words might be only informational, might be legal, might be rhetorical, so on and so forth, might be persuasive, so on and so forth, but you have different ornaments that you can still use on them. It may not necessarily be alliteration, but there are other ornaments that you can put on. So that's ornamentation. Extra stuff that you put on. As mentioned before, and because we are going to talk about musical notation as formatting, uh, with musical notation, it's not just like where the pitch is, but it's the ornaments that, again, tell you Uh, sort of what to do with, with the notation that you've put on. And that is performative information. By the by, if you're not following threatening musical notation on Twitter, you are missing out on the type of ornaments you can put on musical notation. It's amazing. All right, so that's ornamentation. Let's go back now and talk about style. As mentioned, I think there are quite a few different types of style of language. And what this means is how are you going to arrange the black on the white? What do you in what style do you intend those black notations to sort of evoke in this case from the performer as well as be heard by the audience? When we think of verse drama, The most common thing to think about is poetic language. But as we know from season one, poetry and verse are not the same thing. Let's take a moment to pull this apart. Let's just pause here for a second. We're going to put a pin in talking uh, a little further and deeper about different styles. Let's talk about verse and poetry. Let's talk about paragraph form and prose. Okay. So if you are looking at verse drama, many people will also call it poetic drama and feel that those terms are interchangeable. But here on Hamlet to Hamilton, we reserve the right to be better educated and as we remembered in season 1 uh, i think perhaps by like episode 3 or episode 2 i'd have to go back and listen um i realized i realized in my own brain that i'd been conflating verse and poetry because because clearly they must be the same thing right When I write poetry, I write it in verse style, so they must be the same. And when we talk about Shakespeare, we talk about antitheses, and we talk about imagery, and T.S. Eliot goes off talking about poetic drama. And actually, like, half the articles from The Guardian are talking about poetic drama and the question of, is poetic drama dead? Yates wrote, like, nothing but pure poetic drama. But poetry, as we know, can be written in paragraph form. That's what we call prose poetry. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Poetical language is a style. It may be in any formatting. If you see many um, short stories actually use poetical style in the informational heading format of their title. One of my favorite stories from way back when, in um, it was in one of Marion Zimmer Bradley's Sword and Sorceress anthologies. I could not tell you which one. Um, but the title of the piece, I still remember, because it was... Night That Creeps Through Keyholes. It's a beautiful story. I actually just looked it up this second. It's from Sword and Sorceress 10. It's by Francesca Maiman. My apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name. And uh, Night Who Creeps Through Keyholes. Beautiful short story. And um, in the bio for Francesca, She was a teenager, and actually, like, I've got to give you thanks, Francesca, because uh, it was reading this story and realizing that teenagers could publish short stories that, like, kick-started my career. (laughs) So anyway, but the title itself, which is in the format of informational heading, is poetic. It uses a poetic style. And in fact, it uses alliteration, creeps through keyholes, k- k- k, right? It's beautiful, and it uses imagery. It uses anthropomorphization, which is a very difficult word to say, I've just discovered, creating night as a human-y type character who can creep through a keyhole. And also, it uses like the, the sense of it's possible to creep through keyholes. Like, this is Chock full of ornamentation that makes it poetic, and it is the title. <laughs> it is the title. The formatting is in the informational heading formatting, and it's poetic. So you can use this style of poetry in any formatting. Verse and poetry are not the same thing, which means as well. As we know, that since poetry, as we've discovered in this past little bit more than a century, poetry does not have to be strictly repeated meter. Look at free verse. Look at T.S. Eliot. There's no strict repeated meter, but the style of his words on the page for The Wasteland or The Hollow Man are poetic. Well, I guess the Hollow Man is a little bit more metered. Anyway, you get the idea. And even more, in the past half century, as we've had the rise of prose poetry, which I'm going to take a issue with in a second, but what they mean is poetic language in paragraph form, which we're going to be hearing in a soliloquy on the other side of this episode. So hang on to that. But which is to say that we can use poetic language in paragraph form. Verse does not equal poetry. Poetry does not equal strict repeated meter. Paragraph form does not equal prosaic language. And prosaic language can still use ornamentation. Okay? I'm going to say that again. Verse is not the same as poetry. Poetry is a style you can put on verse. Poetry is a style you can put on paragraph. Paragraph. Poetry is a style you can put on an informational heading. Poetry does not equal strict repeated meter. Go back and listen to So You Think You Know Scansion." Prose does not equal no ornamentation. And prose can be a paragraph form. Prose can also be in verse form. And we're going to hear an example of that also on the other side of this episode. So hang tight. We're going to be getting into um, maybe not soliloquies, but uh, speeches in different formatting. Some might be soliloquies. Some might be monologues. Uh, if you don't know the difference between the two of them, listen to episode one of season three. All right. So we're pulling these things apart. We're pulling these things that we have spent like seven centuries thinking are are like so intertwined, like hydrogen and oxygen molecules, that we think hydrogen and oxygen are the same thing and can only, let's say, make water. And it's like, no, no. Hydrogen and oxygen, very different things behave in different ways when combined with other stuff behave in very different patterns. And so this is wonderful information for us. It may be that your favorite type of verse drama is in fact highly repeated metered, highly versified verse drama, you know, or I should say like productions, theatrical pieces or cinematic pieces or audio drama pieces. But that means there's a certain formatting style and ornamentation that are your jam. And that's awesome. But pulling them apart Means we have more control over the tool boudoir to ask the question, what do we need at this particular point in our script? To stay on style for a minute more, because again, this is going to be very helpful in later episodes when we're looking at, for example, what are Richard III and Iago soliloquies like and how are they different from, let's say, uh, Ophelia or Hamlet. Okay. Now, I'm going to throw out some different styles. I have not done as deep a dive as I have into formatting for these. So tell me what you think. But I think, by and large, there are a couple different big categories of styles that we can use. And They go from sort of very little ornamentation to considerably more ornamentation. Um, Again, I haven't sort of done the full hierarchy for this. There's a little bit of here be dragons or is this the coastline? Am I actually, you know, doing my cartography correctly? So tell me what you think. But some categories that we might see are prosaic language. Which means very workaday, very quotidian, very conversational, and not that many ornamentations, right? So it's not necessarily uh, slang, because slang gets into ornamentation, right? That's where rap is not prosaic, it is highly poetic because it is using uh, colloquialisms in the use of imagery, and it's using those in a poetic sense. Okay, so prosaic language is everyday stuff. This is what you see in a, a lot of modern theater that is kitchen sink theater, but we also see it in plays like The Cocktail Party by T.S. Eliot. Eliot and Fry were actually going for a little bit more conversational use of prosaic language in verse form. Now, with T.S. Eliot, with Cocktail Party, he does say that the only ornament he was sort of aiming to use on a line of verse in his prosaic language was two seizures per line. I'm not entirely convinced that's, like, really helpful for performance or for storytelling. Um... More experimentation is needed, but that's what he said in his essay that he was going for. So that's kind of interesting. But there we go. Prosaic language, purposely prosaic language, in verse form, with very little ornamentation. In prosaic language, I think there are different types of prosaic language. There's expositional language, which is just an info dump. Um, I do think that's different from informational language because expositional language presumes that the listener doesn't know anything. So you have to, like, fill in on all this backstory, right? Whereas informational language, what you might see in a newscast, presumes you are up to date on, on just, like, terms on what's going on. Uh, they're giving you inform- further information, but they're not having to go back and like explain everything, uh, like you have an expository. Some other types of styles, I think, rhetorical, is different from prosaic language. There might be a bit more ornamentation, right? We might be using metaphor a little bit more in order to make our rhetorical point. We might be repeating phrases at the beginning um, or, repeat, you know, like using refrains and leitmotifs. uh, That's where they get stuck in your head. I have a dream. Um, We might be, and under rhetorical, of course, we're using as well, possibly persuasive language. Uh, So another category, as I said could be rhetorical. And I'd have to go back and, like, check all my debating notes. So those of you who are like, ooh, ooh, I know this, feel free to put it on Twitter and uh, tag us and fill out that part of the cartography better than I am doing today. But rhetorical language, unlike prosaic language, I think does use a little bit more ornamentation. Then we have poetic language, which, as mentioned before, tends to just, like, heap on that ornamentation. And I highly encourage you to go back to the poet's glossary and just have a field day <laughs> playing with all the things that the very deep work of, uh, of the poetic academia has provided for you. There's deep work in the rhetorical and persuasive academia for you. Heaven knows. Uh, so we have thus far prose rhetoric, poetry. And I do think it's fair to also include nonsense. You can write nonsense. Um, Nonsense may be nothing but ornaments. (laughs) And under nonsense, you might have as well just sounds that are made, expressions. Um, I'm actually thinking of the Beatles. Like, when you get to the final refrains of uh, Hey Jude, you don't want something like, I don't know, feel better, Jude, I say, Jude, I say, Hey Jude. What you want is just this pure expression of quote unquote nonsense. You just need the sound Na, 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 hey Jude. Okay. Um, so we can use nonsense. You can pepper in nonsense through your poetry. Thank you, Lewis Carroll, right? Twas brillig and the slithy toes to gyre and jimble through the wabe. And that's awesome. I want that. I want nonsense. I want just sounds. Uh, and you can put sounds on your verse, or you could put sounds in your paragraph, or you could put a sound in your informational heading, in titles, and things like that. We use one very commonly in, like, classical soliloquy, and that is, do you have it? Can you think of it? What's the sound that we use, like, overuse, probably? Oh. We use the nonsense sound of oh, Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I! Right. So nonsense is another thing that we can use, and um, I'm not sure how to put this in, but I do think pitched words should fit in somewhere. Maybe that's an ornament. Um, it might be an ornament, but I'm interested. What other uh, what other categories could we put? on this. And in fact, one that we haven't mentioned and which I think might deserve its own like episode is the use of silence, the sound of silence. Um silence is an option, right? Beethoven's 5th would not be as great if it were da 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 you want the da-da-da-da, pause, pause, da-da-da-da, pause, pause. Then da 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 Right, you get the idea. Same thing, good old Hamilton, and I'm not throwing away my shot. If it were just, and I'm not throwing away my shot, okay, that's fine, but that silence in there that silence as something that maybe isn't vocalized by the performer but is present in the performance is absolutely as we talked about in the silences episode of the tulle boudoir absolutely something that fills up time because as again someone cleverer than i said uh, essentially to paraphrase performance is a way to decorate time <laughs> Another thing we could add in is stage direction, and that actually is something we write down with words on the page. It's a type of formatting, and it's something that is really kind of only for the performers. They could take it. They can leave it. They can change it. Um, The audience may or may not see it. And in fact, stage directions, which is a kind of style, could be written as paragraph as verse, I suppose. No, actually, absolutely. You can write it a top musical notation. Right, you get the idea. You could even, frankly, with stage direction, use pictures. (laughs) It could be a picture, uh, and that's the black on the white. So hopefully this is like expanding your mind a little bit about the possibilities of what we can put in a script. All right, So those are different type of styles that I have seen. Prosaic, rhetorical, poetic, nonsense, silence, stage direction are just some of the styles of black we can put on the white. Um, I guess I should put musical? I don't know. I don't know. Tell me what you think. Tell me sort of where things belong in our taxonomy of performance, what is the bigger category? What are the smaller categories underneath it? All right. So those are styles. We're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back with formatting. And the cool thing is I'm going to try as best I can to give you examples from the different sort of punnet squares. <laughs> like, for example, what is a poetic paragraph sound like? What does a prosaic paragraph sound like? What does a poetic verse line sound like? What does a prosaic verse line sound like? And we're also going to go deeper into different styles of verse, which perform very different ways. And I'm very excited about this. All right, let's take a little break, and I'll see you on the other side with a bunch of examples. It's time for an unhinged rant. (gasps) Or is it? Unhinged rants are when myself, Emily C.A. Snyder, just goes off on whatever it is that I am researching for you. And it is largely biased. It is very unscholarly. It is an extreme rant. It has a lot of profanity, and it's a lot of fun. The first two Unhinged Rants are available for everyone on the main feed. They're about T.S. Eliot and Lord Byron. You can give them a listen. All the remaining Unhinged Rants, which will come out monthly, are only for our patrons on Patreon. So if you would like to hear some Unhinged Rants, things that are perhaps a little bit less measured and, and uh, luxury then head on over to patreon.com slash hamlet to hamilton and you'll get to hear all of the fire, fire, flames from the side of my face. Unhinged Rants! Hello, friends. Welcome back. So we're going to be taking uh, just a very brief sample of different ways to mix and match the Punnett square of style and of formatting. We're not going to go entirely deep. That's what, like, the rest of this season is going to be full of examples. But we're going to briefly touch on it just so you get a sense of the different styles of formatting so that we have a common language. When we look at soliloquies uh, very soon, but in the sort of second half, non-just definitions part of our season three on soliloquies. All right. A reminder that quite a few of the words I'm about to use today um, are ones that I am making up, trying out, um, but which is to say you might not have heard of them before. Some of them I haven't made up um, do not worry. Everything will be on the website. Um, be a little kind to me. (laughs) Um, my life is changing very quickly. So I will get this up on the website as soon as possible. It might be in little drips and drabs. Um, I will at least get the words up, uh, in time for this episode. All right. So hamlettohamilton.com, will shortly and eventually have longer articles on each of these types of verse formatting, of formatting, so on. So let's start with uh, three of the major types of formatting that we're going to use for the stuff that's vocalized, for stuff that we expect the performer to vocalize. Very briefly... We had already mentioned informational headings as a type of formatting. I can go into a Minnesota about that at another time. Uh, Maybe I'll talk about it more, uh, certainly in future episodes. But informational headings, for example, uh, are the titles, act one, scene one, also the placement of the name of the person, who is speaking also in screenplays, things like exterior Bob's House Day. Okay, so all of those are informational headings, even the page numbers, informational heading. That's one format, but that format is not meant to be vocalized in a script, unless otherwise notated. Another type of formatting are stage directions. Stage directions are going to presuming words, right? Stage directions are going to be formatted differently depending on the style of performance you're doing. If you're doing a screenplay, stage directions take up the majority of the page. If you're doing uh, most often, right? It doesn't have to, but that is sort of industry standard at the moment. If you're doing a uh, play, stage directions are frequently offset, Um And the words that are meant to be vocalized tend to take up the majority of the play. Again, does not have to be so, is frequently so. All right. Stage directions, again, are not meant to be vocalized unless otherwise stated or decided. But stage directions are meant to be executed, right? They are meant to be performed, again, All of the text that a playwright gives the performers is a love letter (laughs) to them, which then the performers, they interpret it, and so on. What we're going to focus on are the types of formatting that are meant to be vocalized. That means I'm only going to be talking rather lightly today about white space, about silence. All right, I am positive we're going to delve more into silence Um, And particularly into white space on the page in future episodes, in future seasons. But we're only going to be touching lightly on white space, which is its own sort of formatting and functions differently depending on what uh, black notation formatting you're using upon the white. If that's confusing, uh, don't worry about it. (laughs) Put a pin in it. We will come back to it. All right. So... The three major types of formatting for stuff that's meant to be vocalized that I see at the present, and again, I reserve the right to be better educated tomorrow, and at the moment, I'm not going to include pictures. Um, although if your language is picture-based, then awesome. <laughs> then in fact, Uh, that might be something you want to pursue even more. Um, And then please tell me about it because I want to (laughs) know. But what I'm going to be talking about is particularly formatting for languages that function like English insofar as we read from left to right, from top then to bottom. Um, Yeah, those sort of details. So please, everything I'm saying in this take it, apply it to your own language. If you are so inclined, please, please, at me on Twitter, at Hamlet to Hamilton, with the number two in between. Um, because the beauty of multiple languages is that it, it 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 invites different forms of thought, different ways of approaching the black on the white. And I'm very excited about that and would love to know more. But for Anglophone... Uh, drama, script writing, and then interpretation, uh, and not just English, but you know, most Western languages, um, some Eastern languages, we are talking about left to right, then top to bottom. Okay, And we're also talking about, in our case, like rectangular pieces of paper. Things might be a little different if we're using different types of paper. But in this point, um, for our purposes, we are talking about putting black on white in a Western language style and presuming some sort of quadrangle (laughs) is our canvas. Again, we are trying to pull things apart. The three major types of formatting that I see are paragraph formatting, verse formatting, and I'm going to include musical notation formatting. We're going to be talking the most about verse formatting. Um, we will talk then the second most about paragraph. We will talk the least about musical notation uh, because that is a very liminal or sort of in the doorway type. Um, you know, is it is it meant to be considered part of the music world, musical performance? Is it meant to be uh, in the spoken vocalized word performance? It's right there on the edge. It's very exciting. But I think, yeah, you could use that in your meant to be spoken script. You could. All right. So let's, let's skip around. Let's start, in fact, with musical notation. And I have here our favorite, the piano scorebook for Hamilton. Let me take a look at it. Okay, so in the very first song, Alexander Hamilton, all it uses the um, modern Western five-line G-clef, bass-clef. Um, I mean, it could have used the Gregorian chant four-line if it wanted to. Uh, it could have used a percussive line, which is just a single line, which I think might have actually been even more helpful, at least for the vocal line here. Um, I know that there are other forms of musical notation. So those of you who are musicians in the audience, I'd be very interested in what sort of like sub formats of musical notation we could use for spoken word uh, scripts. But what we have here is uh, how does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot? And what I'm seeing is that all the quote-unquote notes are on the B line. A little bit arbitrarily, (laughs) I feel. Um, But I mean, we've got pages and pages of this. What it really means is speak it, don't worry about pitch. But do worry about duration. The first three notes are 16th note triplets. The whole thing is in 4-4 time. It does have, obviously, backing music that you are meant to be in sync with, but if I were to read it, it would be 16th note triplet, then, uh, let's see, five eighth notes, two 16th notes, eight notes, two 16th notes, uh, three eighth notes, one two three four five six seven sixteenth 16th note Eighth note, sixteenth note. Okay. And what, if you don't know what those are, it just tells you how long of a beat to give that particular syllable. Right. And that itself is a little bit of ornamentation. In fact, there is a sort of, we could put it under nonsense or onomat- uh I can never say that word because I always wanted to put the T in there. It's onomatopoeia. Maybe there is no T in there. Eh, anyway. Uh, be kind to me, listeners, <laughs> but there is a place where it says, snap both fingers, and it's given both a pickup note and a, um, and the sort of X n- neutral note, which is just fascinating. All right. So here we have musical notation for vocalized words said by characters in this case in a performance. Uh, This is not a soliloquy or a monologue. This is uh, sort of a shared address, if anything. Um, We could go again further into that. And it tells us the duration of where exactly in time we're supposed to say each syllable. If you think about verse, if you think about paragraph form, neither of them give exact duration, do they? They don't give tempo, whereas... One of the ornaments on this notation, it says at the very top, slow, where a quarter note, that is one beat, equals about 68 beats per minute, which is like just slow, (laughs) basically. Okay. So musical notation is something we can use. And uh, people who are, pardon me, people who are transcribing uh, hip hop, rap, even spoken word, spoken opera, using musical notation of a variety of different types of musical notation can be very helpful to the performer. That may not be what you're trained in. If you're trained in Shakespeare, you're trained to read the sort of music of Shakespeare's particular type of verse. But my musical theater peeps, you are trained to read a different type of vocalized notation. It tends to be much more proscriptive. And in fact, one of the things that I think we could consider sort of across the spectrum, uh, we might actually put nonsense or vocalized sounds or whatever we want to call it at the extreme end of like not proscriptive at all. It's at the other end of extremely ornamented but it's not prescriptive. If I've got an O, I know that I could go, oh, 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 ow! <laughs> I have a lot of choices with that. Um, with pro- uh, Sorry, I was about to say prose, not paragraph form, but those are not the same, are they? Reserve the right to be better educated. In paragraph form, as we're going to hear, it tends to be very loose. Um, the actors, the interpreters can be they're less prescribed about sort of rhythm and tempo, things like that. With verse, because we have line endings, it tends to be much more uh, indicative and suggestive. And then with musical notation, it's even more prescriptive, even more suggestive. Okay. So hopefully that, that makes a little bit of sense. So we talked about musical notation. Let's go back and let's talk about paragraph form. Paragraph form is defined by the margin. Let me say that again. In paragraph form, we are looking at text in our case, which is defined by the margin. If musical notation is defined by whatever musical staff essentially you're using, paragraph form is defined by the margin. Let me go further. Now, there are two ways that a paragraph can be defined by margins or borders. Uh, The first way is if it goes from side to side, (laughs) directly from the margin of the paper to the margin of the paper, right? In America, it's about an inch from each side of the paper. A paragraph, uh, depending on how you're using it, right, we can have a border between paragraphs of white space, which may or may not be performed, And Or we can use like a little tab at the beginning of the paragraph, like a little half an inch of white space to give a sense that basically this is a new paragraph. But again, that's not necessarily a performative suggestion. The other way to create margin for the paragraph is if the informational heading of the names of the characters are sort of in a column on the extreme left, again, talking about left to right languages, then there's sort of a new margin of all the text taking up the majority of the page, but not necessarily that column of names on the left. So the margin might, for me, I tend to do, I think, an extra inch and a half in from the the left margin. For me, because the whole point also of all this formatting in any form of script is to immediately and effectively and efficiently get the performative information to the interpreters. So that's why it's really helpful to be absolutely clear so that people aren't wondering, hold on, is this a stage direction or am I supposed to say this? Is this in paragraph form or is this verse? So for me, for example, because a paragraph is defined by the margin— I like to justify all my paragraphs so that people can clearly see the margin. To justify is basically that there's not going to be a ragged end on the right side of a margin, but everything is going to be that nice little rectangle so that you can tell this is a paragraph. This is very important to me, particularly because I mix paragraph form with verse form. And some verse lines, as we're going to hear might be so long that they actually wrap around. And I don't want my, uh, my actors to be confused as to whether they're performing paragraph form or verse form because the performance style is different. Let's take a listen to two paragraph forms, one that's going to use prosaic language, uh, in this case, expositional, and one that's going to use more poetic language. This is going to be a slightly longer podcast. We will split it up into three parts, so you're okay. Uh, But let's stick with paragraph form on this side of of the podcast. Okay. So here we have paragraph form from Thornton Wilder's Our Town. I'm going to be reading, again, from the very beginning. Uh, So Act 1, Scene 1 as twere, although uh, Act 1 apparently has no interior scenes. um. This is the stage manager speaking, and it begins with, This play is called Our Town. It was written by Thornton Wilder, produced and directed by whoever. In it you will see, and he lists the casts of people, and many others. The name of the town is Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, just across the Massachusetts line. Latitude 42 degrees, 40 minutes. Longitude 70 degrees, 37 minutes. The first act shows a day in our town. The day is May 7th, 1901. The time is just before dawn. Okay. So you can hear, this is paragraph form. All I have to go with um, are, like, punctuation marks for ornamentation, where I'm supposed to take a breath, things like that. Or where it's suggested I take a breath. Um, It goes from margin to margin, the copy I'm looking at, which is printed by... So it's there. Bum bum bum. This is the Harper Perennial Modern Classics. Uh, it's actually it's a really good edition. I do recommend this one. They take out a lot of the unnecessary stage directions. To be entirely honest, um, which can make uh, like the the version that you buy directly from the publisher uh, has all the stage directions, including as we talked about before, like Emily's Emily's line at the end is. Goodbye, tree, or whatever it may be. But there's a stage direction before it that says, She looks at the tree. And it's like, okay, we don't need that. Thank you very much. Anyway, but what you heard that's paragraph form, prosaic language, in this case, expositional prosaic language. Let's take a look at a slightly more poetic style paragraph form. This is Adonis from my act four of Cupid and Psyche. Um, I'm just going to do the second paragraph of his. All right. So Adonis is speaking about Cupid, and he says, in paragraph form, but with more poetic language, I looked into his early morning eyes that sometimes have shone silver when he's glad, and hoped therein to see myself at last. But as I gazed on him, my sight grown weak, my mind befogged with a rising scream, the smell of rotting festers already in my nose, I say as I felt my soul slip down through Hades' vicious maw, I saw within his tender, silver eyes that all his sight was still of her, and all his thoughts possessed by her, and all my death still reeked of her, of her, whom he hath made his bride. Now in that you might have felt that you heard line endings, but what you really were feeling was just wherever I took a breath. It is actually in paragraph form. There are hyphens, there are some periods, there are even, let's see, there's some capitalization, some use of uh, italics, in terms of ornamentation, as I was doing it, I felt actually that I might have been using a stricter repeated meter, which you might have felt and presumed was in verse. But it's in paragraph form. It just uses the style of verse. And it was in paragraph form uh, in large part because I felt that was important to Adonis's character, that while he'll get pulled into speaking in verse with the gods, he is really aiming for autonomy, and hence he tends to use paragraph form. It is a thing that I'm trying to communicate from me to the actor playing Adonis. Similarly, using paragraph form throughout Our Town, even for places that get a little bit more poetic, such as Emily's final speech, um, you're given, you as the performer, in this case I directed Our Town, I've actually also been in it, um, I enjoyed directing it more. Uh, but because it's all paragraph form, you get the sense that this is meant to be daily life, that it's not meant to be heightened except in the imaginative parts if you're not meant to have furniture in a set, so on and so forth. So a paragraph is defined by the margin Musical notation, obviously, is whatever sort of musical notation you're going to be using, and it's defined by the type of musical notation you're using. Let's take a little break, and then let's talk about the different types of verse, as we are, in fact, redefining verse drama. See you on the other side of this. Turn to Flesh Productions is presenting a new satyr play... Orpheus was an asshole, which we filmed and are putting up on our YouTube channel. It's a hilarious new play about Orpheus and Eurydice, written by Joe Montoya and directed by our own Chris Rivera. It will be released first as a web series, starting very soon, and then we'll continue through and there'll be a supercut. I love this play, and it's really nice to have a sadder play, particularly in these unprecedented times. Head on over to our YouTube channel to check out Orpheus Was an Asshole, written by Joe Montoya, directed by Chris Rivera, presented by Turn to Flesh Productions. We'll see you there. All right, folks, it is what you've been waiting for. Here we are about to redefine verse drama or more specifically to talk about different types of verse and to touch briefly on how they function differently regarding performance there will also be a few examples as we go through this is not going to be as uh, full and deep we're going to it's more a survey of the different types of verse because I'm sure that as we go through the season and future seasons, there will be plenty of time to come back in a more specific way to this is how this soliloquy works. It's using this type of verse, things like that. But let's do a brief survey. These are the types of verse that thus far I have identified. And as always, we reserve the right to be better educated So if you've made a discovery or if you want to clarify something, please do. And uh, I'm excited to explore these things with you. But these are the four types that we'll look at today. A reminder that everything is on the website hamlettohamilton.com. The four types are stickic, strophic, adotocic, and morphic. I'll say them again. Stickic, strophic, adatosic, and morphic. And just to put that in here, um, quite a bit of this is original thought. Woohoo! Copyright! All right. Let's go very briefly through some definitions. Stickic, which is something you will find in your poet's glossary means that it's one line after another with no breaks, basically. This is the type of verse that you would expect to see in a Shakespeare play, one line after another. We're going to go into more detail in just a second. Strophic means that while it's one line after another, they're grouped into smaller chunks, for example, stanzas. Again, we'll go into that more. But strophic is something we can frequently expect to see with lyric writing. Then we have what I'm calling adatosic. Adatosic, which if I've got my Greek right, so feel free to uh to at me, actual Greek speakers. What I'm calling adatosic means unbound. So it's when the verse is essentially all over the page when it's extremely free verse. And then opposite of that is what I am calling morphic, which is when the verse makes a distinct shape, which is different from stickic, different from strophic. So morphic is when it makes a shape. And a reminder that with all these different types of verse... You can use prosaic language, poetic language, rhetorical language, nonsense, silence, so on and so forth. A little note about silence, though, depending on the type of verse, it actually treats silence differently. Again, I think we're going to need a whole nother podcast episode on redefining white space depending on the type of verse you're using. We'll touch on it briefly today. So let me go through that one more time. Stickic is one line after another, what you expect to see in a Shakespearean text. Strophic means that it's using, for example, stanzas. It's using chunks of verse one after another. So they're in chunks. Adetosic means that it's just all over the place, right? And it will mix and match. It'll have some stickic parts. It'll have some strophic parts. It will tab over. It'll be very free. aditosic, extremely free. Again, the Greek word, I hope, means unbound. And then morphic, which is when you're making a specific shape, that, and the shape is meant to inform the performance. And that's going to be important when we talk a little bit more about stickic and strophic forms. Okay, so morphic specifically makes a shape. The shape itself is supposed to inform performance. Right, let's get into what each of these are and give some examples. We'll start with stickic because, again, that's what you're accustomed to seeing when you think of verse or poetic drama. You're expecting to see one line after another, Um, kind of making a big rectangle, essentially, in the middle of the page. A big rectangle of text, sometimes shared, sometimes with little half lines that don't seem to be shared, sometimes with white space that makes us think that we ought to fill it up with something, sometimes. So stickic is one line after another. Now, I've identified two forms of stickic verse. One is the type that we use essentially when we're trying to look very much like Shakespeare or Elizabethan um, verse drama, essentially. We're going to call that idetic, uh, as in having an idetic memory or the word identical. And so for this idetic stickic form, it's one line after another, and basically the shape, is kept very tight. So that's where we could say it looks much more like regular, let's say, 4-4 four, four music, or in the case of iambic pentameter, it's very strict, 5 beats, sometimes 6, sometimes 4, right? But it's keeping something very regular, idetic, stickic form. And this is why having a strict repeated meter go back and listen to this, so you know, so you think you know Scansion episode. If you're going for an idetic stickic form of verse, then things that help to keep that verse very tight, very regimented, the ornaments you're going to use uh, are going to be very helpful to get you that strict idetic stickic verse. And again, you don't have to use poetic language in order to use a strict repeated meter, right? That may be the only ornament that you put on very conversational or prosaic language or nonsense language or rhetorical language. You get the idea. All right. So if idetic stickic verse is one line after another with a very tight, rigid format, then clearly we must have a type of stickic verse where the line endings are sort of all over the place, where... It's like the ends of the lines, the lineation is very free. And in fact, we see this sort of very free, very loose, but not necessarily making a shape type of stickic verse in most modern verse dramas. We're going to call this Protean. Um, So I've named it (laughs) mostly because all the Greek words that meant like loose or versatile were not easy to say in English. And so I was thinking of Proteus uh, from the Greek mythology, this guy who could change his shape. So we're going to call this Protean stickic verse. It's one line after another. Again, it it could be any style of language, but one line after another, but the line endings are are all over the place. Again, you could use a part of strict repeated meter. You might not have a repeating beat. Do you remember this? But you might have repeating rhythm, but it's not necessary. It's a very loose form of stickic verse. So let's take a moment and let's read some idetic stickic verse and then some protean stickic verse. Let's start with good old Hamlet. All right. So this is idetic stickic verse. It means it's going to have a very tight structure. In this case, um, Shakespeare, we're going to be looking at Hamlet, a speech that we actually looked at way back at the beginning of season one. Uh, so he used a very strict repeated meter. In this case, he used strict repeated iambic pentameter in order to get that tightly structured, idetic stickic verse. So... This is a monologue, right, because Hamlet is speaking to other people from Act 1, Scene 2. And I will only read Hamlet's speech. There's a little bit more context on the, the page on Hamlet to Hamilton, which is currently under uh, additional resources and then the question, what is verse? All right. Hamlet says in idetic stickic verse. Seems, madam, nay, it is, I know not seems. Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration of forced breath, no, nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected haviour of the visage, together with all forms, moods, shapes of grief that can denote me truly, these indeed seem. For they are actions that a man might play. But I have that within which passeth show, these but the trappings and the suits of woe. Now we also know that this happens to use uh, somewhere between rhetorical and poetic language, right? It's got a few um, a few heightened words in it. It's got some nice repeated vowels. It has the repeated nor customary nor windy no nor the fruitful nor the dejected. Uh, so we have repetition at the beginning of a line. Um, we have, as mentioned, a fairly strict repeated meter ornament, so on and so forth. Okay, so we could go through and talk about the style and the ornamentation on this, but for our purposes, it's important to note that this is idetic stickic verse. And we can talk more about this, but I realized that the reason why like John Barton and Peter Hall, the founders of the RSC, came up with the idea of, like, if there's space in an idetic stickic verse, if there's white space in the middle of this very tightly constructed-looking verse, that must mean something. Uh, something that, for example, Abigail Rokesen, who hopefully we'll be interviewing later this season and who has some really exciting ideas about how to interpret Shakespeare, uh, you know, we can challenge that. Did Shakespeare actually mean for white space to mean that you need to fill it up with silence? Did he mean that you're supposed to fill it up with movement? Did he mean that it's a tempo change? Did it mean that he wrote this at 2 a.m. and he just didn't care that he left a half line, which uh, I know I've done (laughs) as a playwright, so, you know, uh, Anyway, but because you're looking at this tightly constructed thing with fairly regular looking line endings, there is a tendency to presume that white space within it must mean something. And while that may not be entirely applicable to everyone in the past who has written idetic stickic verse, that could be absolutely applicable and very helpful to performers In contemporary verse, if we know that we are purposely leaving white space, then that is helpful to the performers, right? Okay, let's take a look now at protean-stickic verse. We're going to look at two things. One is T.S. Eliot. One is Lucas Snath, because I want you to hear what it's like to have very contemporary speech on protean-stickic verse and what it is to have more poetic rhetorical speech, just so that you can hear um, sort of what they sound like. So we'll start with Eliot, who is going to be writing protean stickic verse. That means one line after another, but the lines uh, could be wicked long or wicked short. It kind of doesn't matter, but. It's important, too, that he's not trying to make the line endings into a certain shape. Like, he's not trying to make pennants coming off from the side of the page or triangles or waves. He is just putting, you know, like writing the line as long or as short as he wants without trying to make it eidetic, without trying to make it more or less identical. Okay, So here is from Good Old Murder and Cathedral, some protean stickic verse by T.S. Eliot. So this is the chorus speaking near the very end of the play. I am reading this from the Complete Poems and Plays of T.S. Eliot from 1909 to 1950 from Harcourt Brace. For those of you reading along in your books, this is page 195. Act 1. Towards the end, the chorus says, and I'll make sure you can hear the line breaks. We have not been happy, my Lord. We have not been too happy. We are not ignorant women. We know what we must expect and not expect. We know of oppression and torture. We know of extortion and violence, destitution, disease. The old without fire in winter, the child without milk in summer, our labor taken away from us, our sins made heavier upon us. We have seen the young man mutilated, the torn girl trembling by the millstream. And meanwhile, we have gone on living, living and partly living, picking together the pieces, gathering arcane F word for a bundle of sticks at nightfall, building a partial shelter for sleeping and eating and drinking and laughter. God gave us always some reason, some hope, but now a new terror has soiled us, which none can avert, none can avoid flowing under our feet and over the sky. Under doors and down chimneys, flowing in at the ear and the mouth and the eye. God is leaving us. God is leaving us more pain, more pain than birth or death. All right, we'll stop there. It goes on. It goes on a bit longer, and then Thomas replies. Actually, Thomas replies in mostly eidetic stickic. Which is really kind of interesting. Then he gets longer and longer, but hopefully you could hear, like that the lines were not of an even length. Now I didn't play the commas in there. Essentially, the written in sejures, which might have made it feel more idetic, a little bit more regular. But it is written. For example, this is this is the full line. God gave us always some reason, some hope, but now a new terror has soiled us, which none can avert, none can avoid, flowing under our feet and over the sky, is one line of verse. But that was still fairly poetic language. Take a listen to This is A Doll's House Part 2 by Lucas Hanath, which did perform here very well in New York City. Um, I am looking at the Dramatist play service, uh, basically the, the playbook copy. This is also from Act 1, page 22, reading for Nora. And you're going to hear, again, protean, stickic verse. So the line endings are all over the place, but are not trying to make some sort of morphic shape. But this is written in prose. All right, listen to it. At first, I wasn't sure what to write. So I wrote the first thing that came to mind, which was a story about a woman who lived in a house like this house and had a husband like Torvald, and lived in a marriage which, by all appearances, was a good marriage. But for the woman, for my heroine, she felt suffocated. She felt like she had no options, that her life was as his little wife, and that this was set in stone, and there'd never be the possibility of anything else ever. And so she left her husband, and she started a life of her—and listening back to that, you'd probably think that was in paragraph form— right? But it's not. It's in verse. And what I like about protean-stickic verse is, remember we talked about Schwumpf and Ouvriel, uh, or you remember the interview with Caden Musser talking about their Cassandra play? What you can do is you're not cutting on something that makes it idetic that keeps it very tightly structured. And so as a performer, I was invited to treat each line more or less as a single breath. There are some places where there is a sejura uh, indicated by an M-dash, but M-dashes sometimes mean rush through the next thing. There's there's various interpretations. Um, the only thing that bothered me was that there's this one line that I can't tell if it wraps around like a very long Elliot-in line um, or if it's two separate lines. And I wish that either Hanath's uh, editors or Hanath himself, I don't know, had capitalized each line of verse at the very beginning so that I knew it was a new line of verse and I could treat it as its own line of verse as a performer. Or if it were a very long line, that the there basically would be an underhanging. So you tab in the second part of the line that wraps around. So again, I know this is continuing from the same line as before. And that's in fact what they do uh, with the Eliot verse, although I think they tab in the beginning of the line. and then so it's more like a paragraph type thing. Uh, but since it's important to know what the full line is, and since with protean stickic verse, as you can hear, you can have extremely long lines, you want to make sure that your lineation is very clear. But so in, it's interesting. If you're looking at idetic stickic verse, and if you're using a strict repeated meter in order to get that, although you don't have to, um, you might be cutting on the meter. Um, I have some mixed feelings, as you guys know, listen to the line endings one, about whether that's really helpful as a performer or not. Whereas uh, looking at protean stickic verse, um, I'm given clues as a performer as to what thoughts are schwumped together if there's a change in performative energy and oovreal that I'm feeling in my gut, in my groin. Um, So there's sort of like performative lineation, uh, performative line breaks in protean-stickic verse. Or there can be. Again, you are always capable of using the verse more or less effectively. So that's stickic verse. One line after another, one is very tightly constructed, that's idetic. One has more loose variation at the end, and that's protean. Let's look at some strophic verse. Now, the interesting thing is that strophic verse, I personally find was much more common. It seems, someone correct me, perhaps from the Beyond Shakespeare podcast, which you guys should definitely listen to, but I found a lot of uh, strophic verse in medieval plays, medieval anglophone plays. What is strophic verse? Again, if you think of what lyrics look like, if you think about probably your first writing poetry— uh, it's written in strophes, which means that it's chunks of text and then there's a border in between. You may or may not play that border as sort of a moment of silence, uh, but it certainly is less significant than if you have stickic verse, line, 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 and then there's a white space and then line, line, line. Um, You would feel that not necessarily as a strophe. You would feel it as, ooh, I have a moment of white space, and the white space is the next stickic line. But in strophic, what we're seeing visually is that there are sort of very clearly defined chunks of text. There are a couple ways to do this. One is, in fact, to put chunk of text, white line, chunk of text, white line. Another way to do it that I've seen in many medieval plays uh, because often the strophe will be shared between more than one character is, in fact, in the use of end rhymes so that you know that A, B, C, B, D, D or something is a strophe. And then that um, that repeats over and over. So we see that, if you remember way back when, in the Wakefield Master, for example, if you read it, even with uh, trading off who says what line – you can very easily see the strophic nature. We also, as mentioned, see the strophic nature, obviously, in lyrics. So we're very accustomed to strophic equaling rhyme, but it doesn't have to. The other thing is, when we think, therefore, of strophic, and particularly something that includes a rhyme scheme, we expect all strophes to be stanzas. Now, these things are from the poet's glossary. Strophe, stanza, and what we're going to call Pendark. Um, All three of those are established terms in poetry. We're just applying them now to what does it do for performance? Because we're not looking at page poetry. This is beyond stage poetry. This is performative verse. It's not even performative poetry, is it? It's performative verse. So a stanza means that each strophe, each group of lines are equal, are even. That's what we see with the Wakefield Master, repeating the same, in this case, rhyming verse form, uh, even with a same meter that, you know, is a compa- uh, compound meter. Go back again and listen to season one or take a look at Hamlet to Hamilton so stanzas are when it is the same group of lines, whether that's the same number of lines, whether that means that there's an extra ornament on it, such as a rhyme scheme or a compound meter, but each stanza is even, rather similar to idetic, right? And in fact, I would expect with stanza form to see that stanza use idetic verse, right? Because it is making everything even if it's a stanza. But a Pindaric strophic verse means that essentially the chunks have some variation. Now, the variation may be that, again, each of them are using a very strict, idetic stickic verse for its strophe, for its chunk. But in Pindaric, it means not necessarily that we have a loose protean line endings, although you can also do that, but it means that there's variation of some significant sort from strophe to strophe. So, for example, uh, if we're doing Pindaric strophic verse, uh, we might keep the whole thing idetic, but let's say the first Pindaric strophic chunk of verse uses iambic pentameter, and then the next chunk uses, I don't know, um, trochaic tetrometer. And maybe both of them are each six lines long. Um, or maybe we, you know, the first the first three stanzas of this strophic verse are using terza rima. And then we switch over to a villanelle. Um, but we're still, <laughs> you know, this, so there's some variation in pindaric. Again, with strophic verse, you can use any style of language. Something else that's really interesting in the performance of strophic verse is that you can have, speaking of white space, you can have like little indentations at the beginning of lines. Think about limericks, right? So often it's, uh, you start left justified, but da 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 and then you might tab in, ba-da-da-da-da, da 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 and then go back to left justified, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Exhale- okay. But when I perform it, I'm not going, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da 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 pause, ba-da-da-da-da, pause, ba da 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 right? I'm not doing that eidetic um well basically the the barton hall idea of what idetic verse works like um of saying that oh because there's white space in this strophe that must mean silence so which is to say strophe can play with the left justification of the margin in western languages and it might mean a change of meter it might mean a change of some sort of ornamentation it might just be, frankly, for the vibes and aesthetic, but it doesn't necessarily mean silence. Okay? And that's why stanza form, even if it's idetic, right? It it can you it's it can work differently than pure stickic form. Again, this is all on the website. So let's listen to a uh this is stanza form. It's a Stanza Strophic Form, from Arthur Hugh Clough. This is from, I'm not quite sure how to say it, uh, Dipsicus, Dipsicus. I don't know. It's his basically, it's like his inverted form of Faust. Um, and actually, I find this author really, really interesting. Um, I want to read his full stuff. I like that he's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I'm going to read uh, just Dipsicus. D-I-P-S-Y-C-H-U-S. DIPSYCHUS um i'm going to read his two actually technically pindaric strophes i say pindaric because even though they are going to be very similar the second strophe goes slightly longer than the first strophe so technically it's pindaric all right here we go uh and you'll hear that he is again using um He's using rhyme to help me know that there are different strophes. And he's using then as well a refrain, a motif at the end. It's going to sound like lyrics. And certainly if I were directing this, I might actually have the guy sing it. Uh, but it is written to be spoken. So here we go. This is Pindaric, strophic, spoken verse from Arthur Hugh Clough. Who was writing in the Romantic era, so in the 19th century, contemporary of Byron? And he says, How light we go, how soft we skim, and all in moonlight seems to swim. The south side rises o'er our bark, a wall impenetrably dark. The north is seen profusely bright. The water, is it shade or light? Say, gentle moon, which conquers now, The flood, those massy hulls, or thou. How light we go, how softly, ah, we light but as the gondola. Next trophy. How light we go, how soft we skim, And all in moonlight seems to swim. In moonlight is it now, or shade, In plains of shore division made. By angles sharp of palace walls The clear light in the shadow falls— Oh, sight of glory, sight of wonder, seen a pictorial portent under. O oh, great Rialto, the vast round of thy thrice solid arch profound. How light we go, how softly, ah, life should be as the gondola. How light we go, how softly, and then a spirit comes in and says, Nay, for heaven, enough of that today. And this spirit has their own strophic uh, verse. That they respond with. Okay, so that's technically Pindaric, but you could hear lots of poetic ornamentation on that, couldn't you? Let's listen to another Pindaric strophic verse. We're going to go back to good old Eliot, but we're going to be looking at one of his poems, which frankly, I feel his poems, as I think I mentioned before, are almost way more performable than his plays. Here we go. This is Pindaric. Strophic verse, aka it's in strophes, chunks of text, but uh, there is variation between the strophes. This is from that same complete poems and plays. Uh, this is page four, and this is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, just a little bit of it. Okay. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street. Rubbing its back upon the window panes, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create. And time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me. And time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. New strophe. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. New strophe. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare, and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. I would love to do the whole thing, but like, I'm going to stop there. Uh, Because then the next three are all stanzas. But in this, he's also, um, he's playing with, is it protean, stickic? Strophe, pindaric strophes, Is it idetic, stickic pindaric strophies? You get the idea. Um, and these are all, or by and large, most of them are end-stopped with, again, you could hear the rhyme, this is poetic, isn't it? Once again, a strophe does not have to be poetic. I don't necessarily have any strophic, non-poetic stuff on hand. And I think that's just really like when we think of strophes, we get so into, like, rhyme must be part of it. (laughs) And that's just not true, or poetry must be part of it. Um, But I would challenge you to try some prosaic or rhetorical or nonsense strophes. Okay, let's go on then, I'm sorry, you can hear my notes all around here, to adotosic. Now, adotosic Is uh is when it's completely unbound. That's hopefully again what the Greek word means. I know we're going long, but I think uh I think we should be wrapping up fairly soon. So these next two, adatosic and morphic, um, are my idea, rather like the idetic and protean difference. Um, and so I am gonna use my own text for these. I know there is more, I'm positive there is more. Um but for right now, we'll be using some stuff that I've mucked around with. So adatosic can, of course, in- include bits that might look strophic, bits that might look stickic. Um, in terms of white space, I feel that it's much more like sort of what is the performer intuiting? So again, we're not in that idetic stickic, ooh, everything is so regimented that every bit of white space really means something. We're not even in that strophic thing of, like, we're going to indent some stuff to just sort of, like, give a little bit of a vibe. Aetitose can literally be all over the page, and the white space could mean a million different things. There's a lot of intuition. So we'll take a look. Uh, Again, this is—I don't know whether you'd call it poetic language. We'll have to take a look. Um, But this is a speech that I wrote for Galatea, who is the statue that comes to life— Um, from the Greek myth, if you remember that, uh, who was carved by Pygmalion, and he fell in love with her, and there's a curse from Aphrodite. Um, And I was interested in the moment that Galatea came to life. And for some reason, I felt that, like, really free verse was the right way to go. So this is what it sounds like. And once again, the formatting is on the website, so you can take a look at it. Galatea. May I speak now? This mouth is strange. Although you cannot see it, he carved me out a tongue like so. And teeth and lungs, bone, tendon, sinew, each strand of hair a careful indication, and... I... She touches her stomach. A barren place as well to match with... Here. She touches her heart. Then... He gave me fingernails, but would not paint them. I am prettier a blank... Often I have heard him speak to me, complaining of the simplicity of woman—complexity? Simplicity. 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 Simpliss. The word is music on my tongue. Simplicity. Like that water he places on my tongue when he kissed me once goodnight. He kissed me once with tongues and said that he would fill my mouth with words like so much water— I, and I should catch them snow-dropped on my tongue, lap them up with kisses, and arrange them into song. He forgot my vocal cords. Okay, that's the way I interpreted it this time. You're going to see that it's, like, all over the page. You're going to see that it uses a little bit of strophic form. Um, and, uh, but... Very different from Pindaric, where, again, Pindaric is, like, it usually is still, like, more or less left justified. It's not sort of all over the page. Um, And it's not quite just protean, because while the line endings and everything is all over the page, sure, but the line beginnings are too. And, again, stickic, strophic, adatosic all give me very different performative information when I'm an actor. So lastly, we're going to look at morphic, which is something that I've just started playing with. Some of you patrons have also played with it recently. And morphic, it's similar to idetic stickic, right? Uh, or it can be, depending on how tightly structured the uh, way that you're using your lines are to create an image. So for example, creating a star image might be a little bit more tightly structured creating a wave image might be uh, a little bit more loose, right? Uh, It's not quite protean, which again, has no structure uh, with the line endings. Um, And it need not be entirely eidetic in terms of like, each circle will be the same type of circle. You certainly could. It's not necessarily strophic because One circle may become the next circle. The wave may just continue on in a sort of stickic form. Uh, So morphic creates a shape. And I have to say, we're still very much experimenting with what this does because the tendency is to treat it like stickic, uh, you know, with the rules that Barton Hall have come up with. But I I think there's some really different approaches, and we haven't found them all at least as of March 2022, I personally only started thinking about this in terms of performative verse. Like I knew about it for page poetry from like way back when, but I hadn't thought about it for performative verse until like September 2021 uh, when I was prepping to teach a class in October for many of you listeners. Um, So this is extremely new is what I'm getting at. This is like six, seven months old. And uh, I haven't gotten a chance to really play with performance, much less uh, not just vocal delivery, which we can do over Zoom, but actually getting in a room and seeing, like, how does doing something on a wave or in pennants or in triangles, how does that affect blocking? Um, how does that affect, like, choices of light and set? Um Or the way that one scene moves and another doesn't, um, not just delivery. Anyway, I'm going to read to you um, a very short speech that I wrote on triangles, um, which I think worked out well. And then I'll read to you as well a, a small thing that I did on a star. And I think what you'll notice, or what I've noticed about morphic verse in terms of performance, is that, again, white space works as a margin, but... Uh, so much of reading it is about breath, like how long is your breath? So, this is called Battle. It's just a short little speech for whomever. It's written in repeating triangles, uh, not aiming for any sort of repeated beat necessarily, although I did write it mostly in trochees. It is two triangles, one after another. Uh, with a little coda at the end, Uh, so it kind of looks a little bit like a Christmas tree. It might almost sound like strophes, but there is no line in between them. Here we go. Battle. Beyond which, brothers, bones of foes we've broken. Bloody dreams of Johnny Bastard bombing those we cradle as they breathe their brief evaporating gulp of useless air. Be brave. Be brave. Fullness, brothers, belongs to those blood-stained. Believe, I speak the truth, embattled, bruised, and almost at my end. But I, but we, know none of us have died in vain. Believe, believe, believe. All right, so maybe you heard the sort of sense of small to expanding, expanding, expanding. Um, I think to a certain degree, you can vaguely hear morphic verse. Um, But if you think about, for example, that Doll's House piece, it sounded very naturalistic. It sounded like you might think it is formatted in paragraph form, but it's not. So all of these, again, just sort of give a sense of what might be. Let's take a look at another one. This is from a new play that I'm writing, uh, sort of inspired by tarot. And uh, this particular piece is written on a star. I was not going for any sort of um, rhythmic family. I was just making stars with my words and trying to make them make sense. Uh, again, there's a slight strophic nature in so far as, well, it's one star after another, not necessarily with a line in between. On the page, it's very clearly a star, 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 star. And I do think it makes or invites a rather interesting um, auditory pattern. So here we go. This is from uh, Act 1 of my play, Romancing the Moon, currently titled Romancing the Moon, from Scene 9 of Act 1. And it is essentially the Eight of Pentacles, Ata, who is speaking to the magician, um, this is, uh, the first line is the magicians, which starts the star, and then the rest of it will be all Eta. And it uh, goes something like this. Again, this is experimental. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. For context, you should know that Eta has made a golden chain, um, that the emperor now wants and, uh, might be Eta's soul. Might have been made out of Eta's soul. Okay. So the magician starts the star by saying, It is well wrought. Then Ada responds, I only meant it came to me, appeared one day within my hand. I was so gladsome, joyful. I thought that I was dreaming. It nearly leapt from hand to forge. It swung the hammer. It seared the tongs. I sweated to keep up. And then I couldn't let it go. It came from love of here, of him, of everything. I've come to love, and yet I don't know how it came here. I don't want to let it go. I must. I should. I will. And the very last bit is uh, just sort of three lines on their own. Okay. So kind of in the start, and I don't think I actually performed it very well, but you get a sense of bigger, 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 slight, small, small, Bum, 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 or something like that. Kind of interesting, kind of interesting. I'll actually give you one more. This is also from uh, Romancing the Moon. It's at the very beginning, act one, scene one. Um, I was playing with uh, circle-y type things. This is clearly something for fortune. So it goes from a circle down to sort of a column. And again, while you might feel that it's a little bit strophic because you can hopefully hear as it gets larger, as it gets smaller, larger, smaller, um, there is no strophic line in between the different morphic shapes. So here we go. Act one, scene one, Romancing the Moon Fortune Speaks. Round the wheel, up and down the fortunes, rise and fall and rise and fall and rise, for those who patient wait for fortune's wheel to turn, to turn and turn and turn again, and bid the tides to wheel at one with monkey, goat, and snake, with Kotal, Sib, and Chimmy, with Leo, Virgo, Northern Lights, and the snake that eats itself. All fall. Everything must rise and fall and rise and fall and fall and fall and fall. It is the way of fortune. So that's all centered, for example. Obviously, you can hear that I use a lot of spacing as it goes on. Um... It's interesting because it's not at a tosic because it makes a very obvious shape, um, and again, like I said, more experimentation is needed. But um, I feel invited to try to again schwump a line together. Um, there need to be very specific sejura marks uh, in in it, which I do think you can use. So it functions differently from the other types of verse. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. Let me go quickly over the four types of verse again. What I would encourage you to do and something that I found very helpful in looking at these different types of verse is uh, essentially taking whatever the form is and trying to relineate it in paragraph form or in a different type of verse form. And you can see what you gain from doing that performatively or what you lose entirely by like left justifying everything or forcing everything into like a repeated beat Um, or, I don't know, taking the whole thing apart and scattering across the page. You find that the same words, depending on which form of uh, verse you're using, creates extremely different performances. So to go through them real quick again, we have stickic, which is one line after another. We have idetic stickic where it's identical, where it's a tightly structured form like Shakespeare. We have Protean where it's one line after another, but the ends of the lines are all over the place. Again, think T. S. Eliot, think Lucas Hanath, um, and pretty much every modern um Contemporary verse playwright, usually they don't know they're a verse playwright. <laughs> they're just like, I'm putting a line break here because I want you to take a breath. And it's like, well, yes, okay. Um, then we have strophic, where it's one line after another, but they are grouped together and there is a white space border in between. If it's a stanza strophic form, then it is each chunk, each strophe is even, is the same. If it's Pindaric, then there's variation from strophe to strophe. Atatosic, which means that the verse is scattered all over the page, it's going to use every form of verse or no form of verse. Um, Sarah Kane has used this in her plays, atatosic, all over the place. Morphic, which means that it is making specific visual shapes, wherein the outside of both the left. Well, possibly the left. The left and right border make a new form of margin uh, to create a shape to invite something or to communicate something to the actor. Um, It may or may not be felt by the audience. More experimentation is needed. Once again, you go to Hamlet to Hamilton. You'll see examples there. We'll make sure all the texts are there. And if you think you have a different form of verse that maybe we haven't found yet, or there's more you want to say about paragraphs, or you want to talk about diagrams and pictures as a form of the black on white, or talk more about musical notation, but for spoken text, let's talk. Um, It's really exciting to find out what each form of the black on the white communicates in a script from the... Writer or composer, to the performer and cast and crew, the interpreters, to each different set of interpreters, right? And then to the audience, what they receive, what they hear or feel. Um, Yeah, this is exciting. This is exciting. And as always, we reserve the right to be better educated tomorrow. With that, friends, we'll see you as we continue to look at different forms of soliloquy, And indeed, what the different formatting, style of language, and ornamentation does when we are trying to make sure that a character is speaking to us from the stage in a soliloquy. Lots of fun ahead. All right, see you soon. Hamlet to Hamilton, exploring verse drama is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. Special thanks to Stars and Scansion patrons, Ben Claude, Madeline Farley, and Jasmine Nayak. If you'd like to become our patron and get different goodies, you can join us over on Patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton. Hamlet to Hamilton is hosted by Emily C.A. Snyder with audio engineering and sound design by Colin Kovarek. This podcast is part of the Turn to Flesh Productions audio network. You can learn more by going to hamlettohamilton.com or turntoflesh.org. If you liked this episode, please like, share, comment, subscribe. You know what to do. You can follow us on Twitter at hamlet2hamilton with the numeral 2 in between or use the hashtag hamlettohamilton or h2h with a numeral 2. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks' time as we continue exploring verse drama.